Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. I want to start by asking a question from you guys, and it's this. Have you ever sat in a sea of shredded wrapping paper at the end of Christmas Day and had that sinking feeling that you missed something? Have you ever had that feeling where you felt like, oh, man, you know, I really didn't capture what this is about. I blew it somehow. And sometimes as parents, we try to fix it right away, you know, or maybe like right before they open the gifts, we're like, hey, let's read the Christmas story. And it's just, it's too late, you know, like it's too late to try and fix it at that point. Well, this morning we want to start a series um, looking at what Christmas is about so that our hearts will be ready for it. So we'll get the Uh, maximum joy this season and give Christ the maximum worship. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, Jesus's birthday, as you know, is the most celebrated birthday worldwide and throughout history, right? Which is an amazing thing when you think about it. You think about like BC and AD, our calendar is actually split by his birthday. And, um, And we think about like all the people that take part in this in some way using the name of Christmas. But guys, with so many cooks in the kitchen, it's, it, you can end up with a bizarre stew, right? I mean, if you just kind of go along with culture and what it does. And so we know that we need help um, this Christmas season to really make this a time of worship to Christ. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this text we're going to look at this morning. Um, we just thank you for the way that it highlights your son, Jesus Christ, puts him on display in a way that we can worship him. And that's what we want to do this morning. We pray, Lord, you give strength to our hearts to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're looking at Matthew 2, if you want to turn there. And in Matthew 2, we see this really strange group of visitors, okay? So of all the people that visited Jesus um, after his birth, this is the strangest group. And they came several weeks after Jesus was born. They, they weren't there immediately. They came a little bit later. They visited Jesus when he was in a house in Bethlehem, not when he was in the stable. They had used a stable kind of as the emergency delivery room. And then later they had found a house in Bethlehem where they were probably going to rest for a time before making the trip home. That was probably their plan. If you look in verse 1, it says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. And Herod was greatly troubled at this, and all of Jerusalem with him. These these wise men it talks about, they saw some sort of star. People have talked about what that might be. Kepler, back in the 1600s, had an idea of what astronomical thing it could be. There are some options for that. may have been a purely supernatural light. If it was some sort of star or alignment of planets, it's supernatural when it happened. (laughs) You know, it's very well timed. But they see this star and they see it as a sign of a birth of a king. And that was a common belief back then is that at a point of a significant king being born, that there would be a star. The, The word for wise men here, though, is magi. And magi are not the sanitized kings and wise men that we think about during Christmas time. Magi were total weirdos. These were very strange people. Magi was a term for people that practiced astrology, dream interpretation, study of sacred writings, and magic. Okay, so in our culture, these would be some like weird new age people showing up. So these new agey kind of magician sorcerers, they're dabbling in all kinds of things that are forbidden in the Old Testament. And, and people of the Orthodox persuasion in Jerusalem would have seen these people as completely unclean. I mean, these are people that are dabbling in magic and things like that. And that's one of the ways, guys, that we know this story wasn't made up. 
Um, when you see the supernatural things that are in this story and the things going on, you might think, well, this is some sort of fable, this is some sort of legend. But I'll tell you, Matthew wrote the book of Matthew to prove to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And it doesn't help his case at all to say, hey, you know, the first visitors were shepherds and magicians. Okay, like a bunch of sorcerers showed up to worship him. They'd be like, oh, no, thanks, you can keep him, right? The reason why this is in here is because it's true. There's no reason why Matthew would record such a counterproductive piece of material as that astrologers were one of the first people to visit Jesus than if it was true. By the way, we don't know that there were three of them. That's one of the things we think about. There are three gifts, but of course, you know, you might buy three gifts for your wife or your husband, and so that doesn't say that there were three of them. There could have been more. There could have been less. And we don't know their names. In the 6th century, some well-meaning person gave them names. And so they, they were given like Melkor and all these different names for them because we like to do that. These magi were most likely, it says they were from the east. They may have been from Babylon. Uh, magi were interested in studying all types of sacred texts. They, they would pick and choose from a bunch of different things. And, and in Babylon, there definitely would be a Jewish population. They may have had access to parts of the Old Testament. They gave them insight into this whole star thing. There's a, there's a line in Numbers 24 that's a, a prophecy, and it says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And it may have been that they saw this text, and they were responding to this text when they saw the star. A lot of Jews at that time saw that as a messianic prophecy about the Savior King that was coming. And if they did come from Babylon, it would have been 800 miles and uh, that's one of the ways we know, by the way, that, that this wasn't on the same night as the shepherds and all that. They saw the star, and then they started traveling. They traveled, say, 20 miles a day. It would have taken them like 40 days to get there. And so, so how many of you guys have a nativity scene? How many of you guys in your nativity scene includes wise men? Where do you put them? Around. You put them around, but really you should put them like at the other end of the house or out in the yard or something like that. Because if the shepherds are there, they're not there yet, right? They're on their way. And so put them you know, at the neighbor's yard or something like that. They're a long ways away. But um, they, they come to Jerusalem first. They come there because they're looking for the one born king of the Jews. And so they come to the capital, and the Magi start asking around town. And they say, you know, where is the king? Where is the one born king of the Jews? Verse 2. For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So word gets around and word gets to the king, and the king is not happy. The current king is not happy about a, a child being born king. Look at verse 3. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Some things you need to know about Herod. Herod, this is Herod the Great, not the Herod that came later. Um, this is Herod the Great. He lived about 73 B.C. to 4 B.C., which is why, by the way, we know that Jesus wasn't born at like 1 A.D. or 1 B.C. By the way, there is no year zero, which is really weird. It goes from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. It's a weird system. We know that Jesus was born before Christ, okay, <laughs> which is awkward. No, he was born probably around 5 B.C., and we know this because if Herod died in 4 B.C. and he was still around in the, during this time, that it had to be probably around 5 B.C. That, that Jesus was born. So we got the calendar wrong. Don't panic. Some of you have very panicky looks on your faces right now. The calendar was wrong. That's normal. We make mistakes all the time. Calendar wasn't exactly right, but so Jesus was born about 5 B.C., and um, we know a lot about this King Herod from the Jewish historian Josephus. We know that Herod the Great was great in many ways. He was a great administrator. He was a great builder. He wanted to return Jerusalem to its former glory, and so he did these huge building projects. He built theaters and cities and palaces and fortresses. In 2007, they found his fancy sarcophagus tomb area that was one of, in one of his fortresses that he had built. But Herod's most 
His crowning achievement was rebuilding the temple, the second temple. He started that in, in 20 BC. That was later destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. But this was something that was one of his big achievements. So Herod was great in that way. But also, guys, Herod was greatly evil. Okay? He was great in some ways, but he was greatly evil. Herod had this extreme self-focus. He was power-hungry. Later in his life, he got sick, and he got super paranoid. He got so paranoid that he would, if his power was threatened, he would kill off family members. He killed his quote-unquote favorite wife, which is a weird thing. He killed two of his sons, at least. Anytime he saw any dissension or anything like that, he started killing people. And he was brutal even for his time period. That was kind of a more normal thing, but he was even crazy for that time period. So when it says in verse 3 that all Jerusalem was troubled by the news of this king, it's not because they're attached to him. It's because they're worried that he's going to unleash some sort of bloodbath to try and take care of it, which he does, right? Later on in verse 16, as a way of eradicating the child Messiah, he has all the, the male children that are two and under slaughtered in Bethlehem, which would probably be about 20 or 30 kids. Jesus' family had already left and escaped. This was typical of Herod. Um, from what we know from historians. And so verse 4 says that Herod assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. This is interesting. So all of a sudden, Herod's interested in Bible study, right? Herod's all, re- all interested, in, as interested in the, as the Magi are in studying Bible prophecy. Let's get a Bible study together. Let's get some of the smartest people and figure it out. He doesn't have the same motives, though. Look at verse 5. And they told him that the child would be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means the least of the rulers of Judea. For you shall come, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summons the wise men secretly to ascertain from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word. For I too want to come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before until it came to rest on the place where the child was. And they saw the star and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And they opened up their treasures and they offered him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to another country. This passage, guys, teaches us basically that Jesus Christ is the true king to whom all of our worship and all of our gifts belong. And kingship's a big theme in here. You see over and over again the word king and ruler throughout this passage. Jesus is explicitly called the king of the Jews in verse 2. And then he's given kingly gifts in verse 11. Jesus is the ultimate king and deserves all of our worship and all of our gifts. And that we would lay down our lives completely before him. That we would take our little kingdoms and we would submit them to his kingdom. He deserves that. That's not easy to do, though. And we see two reactions to the king here. We see Herod's reaction. He's threatened. He rejects him. And we see the reaction of the magi, joyful worship. First, Herod. Herod is threatened. And to Herod, King Jesus is a threat, right? Jesus is a rival king with a rival kingdom. And guys, all of us, have kingdoms. All of us were born with a domain, with a kingdom, and all of us can be faced with this same choice. Will I submit my kingdom to Jesus? And we all have kingdoms, and we see this real closely in, in marriage. You think about marriage conflicts. What is it? It's in marriage, two are becoming one, but it's two kingdoms colliding. We each have a kingdom, and when they collide, it can be messy. But the thing with Jesus is, is that his kingdom claims rule over your entire life. 
Have you guys ever read through the Bible and found a command of Christ that you just didn't want to do? That's a collision of kingdoms, and that's what's happening here. The question is, will you submit to Jesus' reign? Herod won't do it. The other reaction, though, is the Magi. Look at verse 10. They have joyful worship. It says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures, and they offered gold and frankincense and myrrh. Isn't this amazing? The amazing thing is, is that King Jesus comes, this long-awaited Messiah. The, the Orthodox religious want nothing to do with him. The respectable people in power like the king want nothing to do with him. And then he's greeted by what? These weirdo magi. These weirdo magi are like, we'll take him. We want him, right? And, it, and, it, and it's, it's somehow they knew that Jesus brought a better kingdom. Somehow they knew that Jesus bringing his kingdom into this world is very, very good news. In Isaiah 60, it talks about the Messiah and says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord shall rise upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light and the kings to brightness of your rising. Guys, the world is in darkness, isn't it? I mean, I think you think about 2017, a lot of people said, kind of a dark year, right? Kind of a dark year. Um, in verse 2 of Isaiah 60, it says, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. There is a thick darkness over this world that the Messiah has come to deal with. I mean, think about it. Think about the wars, the never-ending wars. Think about the violence in our communities. Think about violence against the unborn. Think about strife in homes. Think about rampant addiction. I mean, that's one thing in the news this year is like the rampant amount of addiction. I mean, things that grab a hold of people that they can't break free from. You think about sickness and cancer and all the things we've dealt with this year. Think about environmental issues and problems that are happening. Think about rampant abuse. I mean, one thing that's in the media lately is the insanely large amount of abuse against women, thankfully starting to be listened to, but it's rampant, right? And then the loss of truth. It's a weird thing. I don't know if you feel this, but in the last year or two, you know, we've talked about postmodernism and we've talked about you know, relativism and kind of the loss of truth. The rug got like totally pulled out from under us in the last two years, I think. It's crazy. What is truth? You know, like Pilate said, that's the question that we have today. This is darkness, guys. This is the kingdom that man can produce. This is the kingdom that we produce together. But verse 3 of Isaiah 60 says this, But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen by you, and the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Guys, the Messiah is coming to turn the lights on. Yes, he's coming to turn the lights on. And not just for one people group, but for the whole world, guys. There is hope for this world. This whole world is going to be made bright and new. And somehow the Magi know this. Out of all the people that should know this, all the religious leaders and teachers and stuff like that, these weirdo magician sorcerers from Babylon know this, and they're excited. They're totally excited about it. Look at verse 10. It says that they rejoice exceedingly with great joy, which is a silly sentence. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy, you know? These guys are silly excited about this child, and they worship him. This is the crazy thing, too. Somehow they know to worship an infant. They see this baby there and they say, this is the hope for the whole world. And they bow down and worship him because he is God in the flesh. Isn't that crazy to think about? God, the creator of the whole world, a baby, a tiny little baby, you know. And the wonder of that and the questions that arises, like, you know, one of my favorite questions about this I ask the kids is, was he having baby thoughts or God thoughts? 
He's a real incarnate human being, but God in the flesh. It's a wonderful mystery. There's all kinds of amazing things happening here. And then they give him gifts. You see in verse 11, then they opened treasures for him. They offered him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Guys, King Jesus is worthy of all of our worship and all of our gifts. Have you ever wondered or have you ever been asked by a child like, let me get this straight. So this is Jesus' birthday and we give each other gifts. You ever had a kid ask you about that? If you talk about Christmas as Jesus' birthday, kids will ask that. They're like, where are Jesus' gifts? How does this work? It's a good question. It's a good question. How do we give Jesus gifts? And you know what Jesus said about this? Jesus says we can give him gifts by giving it to our neighbor. You realize that? If you look at Matthew 25, verse 40, the king will answer and say, truly I say to you, those who did it to the least of these, my brothers, did it to me. Um, Luther famously said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Right? How do we give gifts to Jesus during this time? We give it by giving gifts to others. Maybe you guys have never thought about a theology of gift giving, but Jesus talks this way. He says, you know, give it to me. And Jesus said, it's more blessed um, to give than to receive. Jesus told us about gift giving, that we should focus on those who can't pay us back. Like, those are the best kind of gifts, is somebody that can't pay you back in return. Um, we give without expectation of, of return. And so this Christmas season, I want you guys to just think about planning to give to your neighbor. Give up and down your street to your neighbors. It doesn't have to be anything expensive. You know, obviously the Magi, these are high rollers. They got tons of dough, right? And so they're bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh. I don't expect you to drop that on your neighbor. But you could, you know, do things that aren't expensive. I mean, some of the best gifts I've ever gotten were gifts that were like handmade or things that were of not really high expense, but they were thoughtful. I mean, one of my favorite gifts has been things for my kids. I, I got a great gift from Yuki once. She made, like, all these little, like, those little um, birds she makes out of paper. And she made, like, I don't know, there was, like, a hundred of them in this, like, glass dome. It was, like, one of the coolest things you could possibly get. And it was something that wasn't costly but took her time. And so I just say, think about how are you going to give gifts to your, to your street, to your neighbors, to people around you. And isn't it fun to give a gift thinking, like, that I'm giving this to Jesus? That's really how to redeem this whole mindset, you know, is to think about it and go, this is a gift to Christ. When I give to that neighbor, you say, well, you know, I've lived in this neighborhood for 20 years, and I don't know these people's names, okay? Embarrassing, right? And then they're like, okay, so why are you bringing cookies by now? You know, like, what's going on? Did you get into real estate or Amway or what's going on? You know, that kind of thing. But it's something that we need to think of. Jesus says, as you do it to others, you do it to me. It's a great season. It's a great time to give in a Christ-focused way. And that rescues us really from two eras of Christmas. There's two eras of Christmas. One of them you're very familiar with them, with is commercialism, right? Everybody knows about commercialism. It's no secret that this time of year is a, is a time of year when businesses are relying on, you know, a big amount of income to get them in the black and things like that, right? And, and we've all sat in that sea of wrapping paper with a ton of credit card debt and thought to ourselves, like, I'm pretty sure this isn't what, you know, Christmas is about. Okay, that's a common one, but there's another one, guys, to think about, and it's curmudgeonism, okay? I coined this term, I think. You know what curmudgeon is? Curmudgeon is grumpy, kind of bitter, kind of whiny, that kind of a thing, right? We can be, there's commercialism and there's curmudgeonism, and I think that Christians, we are a little bit more susceptible sometimes to curmudgeonism. Nobody here in particular, Okay. But curmudgeonism is a, is, is, is a grumpy, combative response to Christmas. And we're good at this. We're good at going like, why doesn't Starbucks write Merry Christmas on their cups? And then we'll get like irate online, okay? Like, that's curmudgeonism, okay? Or to say, 
Did you hear that store clerk? She said happy holidays. She knows what holiday this is, right? No, that's curmudgeonism. It's curmudgeonism to be irritated at crowds. I mean, think of the theology of crowds. What did Jesus think about crowds? Jesus loved crowds, right? Crowds are massive amounts of image bearers of God. They are not a problem, right? To be irritated by how early Christmas starts. It's to see Christmas as an opportunity for a culture war. Beware of news stories this time of year, right? That are trying to incite you into treating Christmas like a culture war, right? Guys, Christmas is a huge opportunity, but not for a culture war. It's an opportunity to give gifts to your neighbors and worship Christ. That's what Christmas is about. It's an opportunity to give gifts to your neighbors and to worship Christ. It's so cool, guys. The whole town is going to be decorated for your Savior's birthday. And you could say, well, yeah, they don't know what it means and all that stuff. Sure, a lot of them don't know what it means. But isn't it cool that it happens? Isn't it cool that it happens? What an an act of divine sovereignty. That God goes, you know what, you know, a lot of these people don't worship my son, but you know what, we're going to have a party anyway. And you know what, they're going to do the decorating, right? I mean, it's so cool. We drive into our neighborhood, and it's already kind of decorated and stuff like that. Guys, it's decorated for your Savior's birth. Guys, we should be way more amazed by what our culture's retained of Christmas than irritated by what it's lost. Seriously. How many of you guys have been in a store and heard a song like Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Deep theology. We're going to sing it as a worship song today. Your worship songs from this morning will be in malls and stores. Hark the Herald Angels Sing says this. Listen to the theology. Mild he lay his glory down, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the Herald Angels Sing Glory to the Newborn King. Are you kidding me? This is amazing. I mean, he's talking about like resurrection, regeneration, God and man. I mean, these are amazing themes, and these are playing everywhere you're going to be. Guys, be excited about this. The, the error of commercialism and curmudgeonism are both doing the same thing wrongly, and it is this. They're expecting culture to focus you on Christ. So at the end of like letting the culture just kind of you know, drift you down, and you float it, and you get it at the end of it, and you go, like, I didn't even think about Jesus. I just bought all this stuff and went into huge debt. Um, what, what's the mistake there? I thought the culture was going to help me focus on Christ. Or curmudgeonism is, you know, these people don't focus on Christ, as if that's their job. Guys, it is not the culture's job to help you focus on Christ. It is not the culture's job to help your family focus their hearts on Christ. That's your job, right? And both commercialism and curmudgeonism are failures to worship. Commercialism is forgetting who we worship, and curmudgeonism lacks joy, guys, big time. And so I'd like to propose something else, something, a solution to this, and that is practicing Advent. Maybe you guys aren't familiar with practicing Advent. Advent is a disciplined focus on the coming of Christ for four weeks leading up to Christmas, and, it, and it's a recognition that we need help to do this well, to make this a season of worship for Christ. And we want to do it as families, and we want to do it as a church. We'll do it as a church starting next week. We're, we'll have a four-week series on Advent. We'll look at Jesus as the son of Eve first, and then the son of Abraham, and then the son of David, and then on Christmas Eve, which is on a Sunday, Sunday morning, son of Mary. And so we'll look at through the Old Testament building up to the birth of Christ. But we also want to encourage you guys to practice Advent together as families. And so Josh is going to come up and talk about that for a moment, and then I'll come back. Good morning. For those of you guys that don't know me, my name is Josh, and I am the children's and family pastor here. And I want to talk a little bit about doing Advent as a family together and doing Advent as, as even singles and uh, grandparents 
also. But I kind of want to know, first off, um, how many of you guys have already started planning for Christmas? How many of you have set up a Christmas tree or decorations? How many of you are normal <laughs> and haven't done any of those things? Okay, yeah, okay. No, we, we have some people here that love Christmas. And um, one of the passages that I wanted to read just really quick is out of 1 Peter 1. And what we want to realize is the Bible tells us that Christmas planning started very, very long ago. And it says uh, in 1 Peter 1, verse 8, it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, this is verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. And so that's really the, the spirit that we want to bring to Christmas this season is this is something that was planned for us hundreds of years ago, four hundreds of years. Using these Advent guides, we want to do a little planning this morning. And I actually want to invite you to do some planning together with us. And so we want to kind of maximize our joy in Christ this season. I know it feels like our Thanksgiving dinner is still digesting. And it feels like we are already moving on. We're already full speed ahead. So we are doing Advent, and Advent means coming or arrival. And so we are building up to the coming or arrival of Christ at Christmas. We're feeling the same feeling that believers in God have felt for hundreds of years waiting for Christ. We're going to mirror that this December. And so some of you guys have already, maybe you buy Advent calendars or you, you stick little gifts every day, building that anticipation in your homes already. But we, what we wanted to do was actually help us plan this morning. We made Advent kits this year for you. So for families, um, we made about 50 of these, so I'm hoping we have enough. So if you want to take one, if you are here on your own, if you're single, Please take one. We'll just kind of do one per family so that not everybody uh, in your family needs one. Or if you're a grandparent, we really want you to take one of these as well. And I, I want to challenge the men, the guys in the families, to kind of take the lead on this in, in doing Advent with, you know, with your wife or with your kids or even you know, bringing the grandparents in. The ladies do a lot already for Christmas. <laughs> Don't give them another thing to do. So we really want to challenge the guys to do it. And so what you're going to get is a, a small booklet that should fit in a Bible, and um, you're going to get some candles. So you're going to get a set of four candles so that you can be lighting these candles each week as a family. And what I'd like you to do is maybe just pull out your phone right now, and uh, the guides, if you start even flipping through them, they're designed to take about 10 minutes. You know, it might take a little longer, a little bit less time, depending on what you do as a family. But figure out what night would work good for us, for our family. Because here's what's going to happen. If you look on your calendar on your phone right now, it might be pretty clear so far for the month of December. 
But there are going to be dots that start filling in day after day after day after day. And so um, we, we want to make one of those first dots on your calendar, if you use a calendar on your phone, this time that you're setting aside for Advent with, uh, again, um, with your, you know, by yourself you can do this, you can do this with um, families, grandparents. For me, for my family, I think Sunday nights, we kind of talked about it, Sunday nights are going to work really well. So we're going to start it tonight. But you could start this at any point, at any time. And what it would be is, um, you know, you kind of gather everyone around. Or you, you could do this for a, a personal devotional study, too. And uh, you would take one of the candles. And this week, you would light the candle. It's fun with kids and fire. And I don't know. This is, you know, brings, brings in another added element of, of danger in, into your family time. And then there's a scripture reading. So they actually give you some passages to read aloud. So our kids are kind of getting to the point where they can actually read, which is fun. So we'll let them read that. And then there's a reflection time. And this is where you would read through this together and kind of ask questions. There's some really good questions for discussion. And then there's a time for prayer. It gives you something to pray about uh, with a family. And then there is a song. This is really cool. I'm a, I'm a little bit musical. You're thinking, oh, yeah, right. We're going to break out the piano or break out the guitar. We don't do that at our house. I'm not super musical either. And so what we do is usually we'll just Google the song and find it on YouTube. And a lot of times it has words with it. So if you don't know all of the words or, you know, that's when you find out you've been singing the words to these songs wrong for years and years and years too. You're like, oh, that's what it says. Oh, that makes sense. But you can do that as a family. You know, we've sat around before and we've just had a computer open and everybody's looking at the computer. And then there's some family activities. And I did want to look at the end of the first one. Um, it says, at the end of your family Advent time, promise your kids that you're going to do something special together to celebrate Advent. Something they will love, but don't tell them what it is or when. So as the days go by, you're building some anticipation and some excitement about it. Then you can connect that to the anticipation that, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, God's people were waiting for him to send this Messiah, and you're kind of building that with your family. It's a great activity, but this is something that you could do even if you're single. Set up something like, hey, I'm going to go do this for this week, and I know, you know, my wife and I were talking, and sometimes for us, planning a vacation or planning something fun to do is just as exciting as actually doing it, because we do. We think about it over and over again, and then when your thoughts go to that, like, oh, yeah, I can't wait till this Thursday or this Friday, I'm doing this, you know, think about that anticipation building towards the coming of Christ. So that would be something that you can do. This is bigger than just for Advent. We want to be the type of church and the type of church families that are building this into the regular rhythm of our, of our lives. And so there's an appendix that's actually at the end of this little booklet that we pass out for you. And the appendix talks about, you know, how do you really build this kind of into the rhythm of your lives. And it really talks about three things that you can continue to do. And hopefully this will be the off-ramp for this, the, the springboard for this. It talks about time, moments, and milestones. So creating intentional time to talk about the gospel with your family, capturing those moments in your life and pointing them to Christ, and then you know, thinking about milestones um, within the family and connecting them to what God is doing in the life of your family. So there's a bunch of ideas back here that are really cool. You can turn off all the lights and recreate what the glory of the Lord was shining on the shepherds with flashlights, candles, props, 
you know, they talk about visiting elderly care centers, singing carols, serving meals, um, all of these things that you could do to, to create that meaningful time within your families. I love this for moments, I say, have a kid-friendly nativity set. So some of us have nativity sets that the kids, they're expensive. They're like family heirlooms. The kids are not allowed to touch. And that's fine, but maybe, you know, have one that's built out of Legos or something, you know, that they built out of, built out of Legos. And, you know, let them really play with that and think about the Christmas narrative. As far as milestones, some of us this year are celebrating an additional family member, right? They're, we're celebrating their first Christmas. Um, there's babies that have been born within the last year, and really, you know, making that a milestone of the family. For some of us, we've lost a loved one, and it's the first Christmas that we are unable to spend with someone. You, you want to spend time reflecting on, on the life of that person. And so really, all this to say, if we plan it right, we can bring a massive amount of joy into this Christmas season that is centered on Christ. And really, that's what we want to help you to do. With that, Eric's going to come up and, and wrap Thanks up. Thanks for doing that, Josh. And uh, Josh and Renee put these candles together with their own hands. Not made the candles. That's kind of like a homeschool thing. But, yeah. um, <laughs> but uh, the wrapping of them was something that they did themselves. So it's super cool. We're excited to have it. So this is a major cultural opportunity. One of the things you could think about, I, th- I was thinking about gospel opportunities that we have. One would be very common conversation is the meaning of Christmas and making sure that Christmas is meaningful and that we don't get caught up in all the commercialism and things like that. How great if you're a parent and you're having that conversation with another parent, maybe a non-church-going person, to say, hey, you know what we're doing as a family? We're doing this Advent thing. Talk to them about that. Make a copy of your Advent guide for them. That would bring gospel, the gospel into their home. I mean, there are great opportunities that we have here. And fathers, you know, like Josh was saying, we really want to call you this season to be focused and fun, okay? A lot of times dads and stuff, because we often are the ones making the money, uh, and there's a lot of money being spent. We can be kind of curmudgeon But, guys, if we practice Advent with our families, we can let all these trappings be garnished to our worship for Christ. Explain to your kids that, like, the whole town is decorated for, for the birth of Jesus. And you could explain to them, not everybody knows what's going on with this. And, you know, this is what it's about. And let your friends know. And be planning fun things to do. You know, I was uh, thinking about kind of some of the fun things. What are some of your favorite movies during Christmas? Movies. Muppets Christmas Carol, what was it? Santa Claus, what else? Good? Right? Elf, right? Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, Home Alone, Polar Express, News. What? Jingle All the Way, Grinch, Narnia, uh, it's kind of Christmassy. New Star Wars movies are always Christmassy. Think about the activities that we have, like hanging up lights and doing all these things. I'll just say, dads, be all about this. Now, I don't actually hang the lights up in my home because I'm afraid of heights, and though we only have a one-story house, Mason has to do it for me. But um, trees, do you guys realize that Christmas trees were something that Martin Luther was totally into? And he kind of brought back the idea of bringing a tree inside. And they would light it, and they lit it with candles, which is super dangerous, you know? And uh, so he was willing to risk things. You know, some of you guys go to Disneyland during Christmas. You guys are high rollers. We can't afford that. It cost me like $1,200 to do that. Others of us go to Mission Inn or uh, Bainbridge. Bainbridge is a cool thing to do. You know, go through the Christmas lights. Maybe invite a neighbor to these things. We have a tradition on Christmas of Incarnation Day carne asada. And so we celebrate the Incarnation with Incarnation asada. 
but tell your kids, guys, there's a month-long celebration about Jesus, and then practice Advent and, and make Christ central in it. It's a huge cultural opportunity. So the last thing I want to bring up real quick as we go to communion is, what turns a Herod-type heart into a Magi-type heart? You know, what turns a Herod heart into somebody that joyfully surrenders and worships Jesus? And the answer to that, guys, is by seeing the love of King Jesus. If you look at verse 6, he said that this king that would come would be a ruler who would shepherd his people. A ruler that would shepherd his people. Jesus is a shepherd king. A totally different kind of king than Herod. Herod would use his power at the expense of his enemies. Jesus used his power to save his enemies. Do you remember the title that the Magi gave Jesus? Called him King of the Jews. Where in Matthew is that term used again for Jesus? It's hung over the cross. Which is where we find out what kind of king Jesus is. And we find out what king Jesus uses his power for. Guys, he's a shepherd king who lays down his life for his sheep. John 10 says, he said this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then he said this, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and to take it up again. That's how Jesus uses his power. That's how that king uses his power. He uses it, that authority, to lay his life down. And it's the whole reason Jesus came, was to lay his life down. And that may explain the gifts that the Magi gave. Some older commentators have seen significance in the gifts. The gold being a kingly gift. The frankincense being something that when mixed with other things was reserved only for the temple. Maybe a picture, a pointer to his deity. And then myrrh. The other place we see myrrh in the Gospels was to embalm Jesus in John 19. And so these gifts may symbolize who he is. His royalty, the gold. His divinity, that he's God as a man in the frankincense. And then his death by the myrrh. And Herod's reaction to Jesus, guys, in a way, if we admit it, is a picture of all of us. We have all not wanted Jesus to rule us at some point in our lives. Um, We have all not wanted to live under his good rule and under his good commands. We've all wanted to be king. This is the core problem with the whole world. We all want to be king. We have all had a natural enmity towards God. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind set on the flesh, listen to this, is hostile to God. Think about Herod. Hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Because we all want to be king. And if we admit it, we have a whole lot of Herod inside of us. Our sin, guys, is treason, and treason deserves death. But how did God respond? It says in Romans 5, 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And then listen to this. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone would dare to die. But God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love, guys. That's the love of King Jesus, the shepherd king. And when the Spirit opens your eyes to see that love, you'll happily submit your whole kingdom to his when you see that kind of love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have sent your Redeemer, Jesus. And we thank you that King Jesus will come, he will reign here on earth, and he will make all things new. And Lord, as we live in the time in between where we see manifestations of the Spirit and we see new life being given, new creation given to people, individuals, and yet we don't see the full new creation that you're bringing, Lord. We live in this time in between. We pray, Lord, that you would remind us, remind us that he's coming again. Remind us that our shepherd king is going to bring his full work into this world. And Lord, may we long forward to that in the same way that the Old Testament saints long forward to Christ's first coming. 
And we thank you for this. Lord, help our hearts be right this year. Help us that this would be a great season of worship and that all the things the culture does is something that we could just take up into our celebration and it would cause even more worship to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.